Amen. Amen. Good deal. Give the praise team a big hand, would you? Man, they did great today. That's awesome. Fantastic. Welcome to uh, Kavanaugh Church. Hopefully this is your church for life, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. I've been preaching messages uh, beginning here in 2019 about you being the best you you can be for God and making this year a great year. Well, with that in mind, take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Uh, we're going to learn some lessons from, from the book of Titus on how we can be uh, the best believers and followers of Jesus this year than we've ever been before. Paul is instructing Titus, a pastor on the Isle of Crete, as to what he should teach to various groups in the church. Uh, I'm specifically going to look at verses 11 through 14, uh, but let me just show you how this chapter begins in verse 1. Paul says to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So that was his assignment, okay? For, for, for me, it would be 2019, will you preach what is in accordance with sound doctrine? That is, preach biblical truth. Okay, that's what people need to hear. It is the Word of God that sets us free. And more than anything else, we need to hear sound doctrine. Not what just sounds good or, as the Bible says, uh, itches our ears. We need to hear the truth of God because it is truth that sets us free. So he says, you be sure and teach the truth, the sound doctrine. And then he goes specifically into these five different groups and what he is to teach each group. He says, teach the older men. How many older men do we have in this service, right? Okay, a couple of you raise your hand. Everybody in the first service raised their hand, right? We were, we were all old men in the first service. He says, teach the older men these things. Uh, the first thing, and I'm not going to go through all of these uh, ingredients that he was to teach them, but the first thing is temperance. Teach the old men to be temperate. That is, specifically, it is the word to be sober, to be worthy of respect, to be self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And then he says, teach the older women. You know, I'm looking out there, and I don't see a single older woman <laughs> in this service. Amen? Amen. There, hey, there ain't no old women in here. Amen. But, but he has specific instructions on what to teach the older women. Stuff like, you know what, y'all don't be gossips, don't be backbiters, don't slander. And then he specifically says, teach the older women to teach the younger women. And Teach the younger women how to be good wives, good mothers, how to take care of their home and their family. And then he has a word for the younger men. Teach the younger men these things. And he said, Titus, be an example to these younger men on how they are to live their life. And then specifically, he talks to slaves. Of course, slavery was an issue back then. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't really have slavery today, but I don't know. Some of you, just talking to you, uh, you feel like a slave on Monday mornings, don't you? <laughs> You know, you, you're working for the man, all right? And I think that is a, is, is a good word that we could take and implement into our weekly lives to be good employees of, of whoever we work for. But these are the things that, that Titus was to teach these specific five groups of people in his church. The older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and the slaves. And, and if I could just condense all of the teaching in the first few verses of Titus 2 down to these words, it would be this. Titus, teach these young followers of Jesus 
that this is the basis of their belief. And they are to behave like they say they believe. All right? So we are to flesh out the Word of God. We are to take the truths from the Bible and we are to live them on a daily basis. That's my job, to teach you that, to train you to live your life in that kind of way. And then he gives us the reason for all of this. And that's where we're going today. Here is the reason for living a godly life. It's found in verses 11 through 14. I'll read it from the screen. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The next verse. While we wait for the blessed hope, that is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we take this instruction today, that we learn from it, and that we implement it into our daily life. Lord, help us to flesh out the faith and to live for you every single day in 2019. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever been stuck at a railroad crossing? Raise your hand. All right. There you go. Uh, this takes me back to my childhood. I grew up in Midland, Texas. Uh, it's beautiful out in Midland, man. It's just, just flat as it can be. You can see for miles. But right through the middle of Midland, Texas was a railroad track. It, it just goes all the way through West Texas, that part of Texas. And in Midland, it is an elevated track. I don't know, Dad, how, how high would you say that track is from, from ground level? It's probably about, I don't know, 8, 10 feet high. You have to drive up this big ramp, go over the track, and then back down the ramp. And there are several of those ramps throughout Midland. Uh, really, the railroad track separates the south side of Midland from the north side of Midland. Now, my mom and dad grew up on the south side. That was a happening place back in the, the 50s. <laughs> I could go further back. The 50s. And uh, they got married, had my sister and I, and we moved way up on the north side of town. In fact, we lived out in the country. But my grandparents still lived on the south side of town. And so we would drive, it seems like almost every day of the week, we would drive across those railroad tracks to see my grandparents. And inevitably, every time we would go across the tracks, there would be a railroad train coming and we'd have to stop and, and wait. Now, I was terrified of those railroad tracks. Reason is, my, my dad's dad, my granddad, was killed on top of that railroad track. It was on Christmas Eve. He was driving his old pickup truck to work and dad, the, the tow truck just stalled right up there on top of the track. His door jammed, he couldn't get out and a locomotive ran him over and killed him. And so I, I was raised with that knowledge and so we would be pulling up to the railroad track and the arms would start coming down and I'd start screaming, stop, stop! Because <laughs> I, I didn't want to get ran over by that locomotive. But here, here's what we would see. Let me tell you one more thing about the the railroad track, while well, I'm just thinking of it. Uh, we had hobos that lived under the railroad track. Now, I don't really know how they lived down there, but at least this is what my dad said. I think that they, 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 they dug out stuff or whatever, but there were, there, were, there were 
groups of hobos that lived under the roof. And I want to tell you how poor my dad was. My dad said when he was a little boy, him and his friends would, would go into where these hobos lived under the railroad track, Jason, and they would steal the hobos' cookies. <laughs> if you believe that, raise your right hand with me. I believe it because my dad was that mean. And, and, and they, were, they were that poor. Anyway, we'd, we'd, we'd travel across the railroad track several times a week and, and uh, we'd get there, the arms would come down, the train would come through. And here's what I remember seeing. There'd be a huge engine pulling the train and then this long track of, of cars behind it. And mom would have us count the cars. That's how my sister and I learned to cipher <laughs> back in middle and count, counting those cars. And we always waited for the little red caboose. Because we knew when the caboose came through, Marcia, the arms would go back up and we could go on to Granny's house. You know, that was a long time ago. I haven't seen the little red caboose in forever. I don't think they have them anymore. You know what they have? They have this huge locomotion, an engine at the beginning of the train pulling all of the cars, and then at the end, they have another huge engine that's pushing them. So there is an engine now pulling the train, and there is an engine pushing the train. And as we think about the life that God has called us to live as followers of Jesus down in this world, I want you to know God has not abandoned you. God has not left you on planet Earth to do life by yourself. God is with you. In fact, he has two powerful engines. One is pulling you and one is pushing you. Did you notice that twice in the verses that we read, we see the word appear? In verse number 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these verses tell us there is a big engine that is pushing us from behind. And there is another big engine that is pulling us to live a righteous, holy, godly life. And our passage describes these two engines. First, it describes the engine that is pushing us from behind. What is that engine? It is the grace of God that brings salvation. In fact, that is literally what verse number 11 says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, before I exegete that verse, let me talk about the last few words in it. I love the little phrase, all men. God's salvation has appeared to who? To all men. That tells me that none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace appeared because we needed it. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't change ourselves. You've tried to change yourself and it's to no avail. You can't change yourself, nor can we save ourselves. So God's grace appears like this shining light in our dark lives, in our hopeless situations to save us, to bring to us salvation. So no matter what you've done, no matter how bad that you have messed up your life, God loves you. 
And God's great grace has been extended to you. He gives you grace, even more grace, because He loves you and He wants to save you. Now, there's something about this grace that brings salvation to us. Look at verse number 12. This salvation, this grace, teaches us to say... No, turn to your neighbor and say no. No. Say it again. Say it to me. See, you can say that word. It's not an impossible word to say. This grace, this salvation teaches us to say no to two things the verse says. To ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So church, this is how grace works in us. When grace comes to us in salvation, it produces something inside of us. It sets us on a new course. It replaces the old sinful desires with new desires. God desires. In fact, it says that it teaches us. The word teaches in this verse really means trains. So it instructs us. It disciplines us. And that discipline results in establishing holy healthy habits in our daily life. The way Paul put it here means it is continually training us. So this big, huge engine pushing us in our life of holiness trains us. It disciplines us. It teaches us how to live holy lives. The grace of God that appeared to bring salvation to us pushes us, trains us, disciplines us. Let me, let me say this to you. God didn't save you to leave you the way you are. You've heard that before, haven't you? God doesn't save a person and then just leaves them the way they are. No, God has a big plan for your life. God wants to tremendously change you from the inside out. So the grace of God trains us to form proper, holy habits of behavior in our lives. The grace of God doesn't just save us from the stains of sin. It saves us from the chains of sin. Literally, this salvation sets us free. It breaks the pattern of sin in our lives, and it replaces those patterns with patterns of righteousness. Specifically, this verse says, it trains us to say no. And specifically, we are to say no to two things. We are to say no, first of all, to godless living. The verse emphatically says, verse 12, to say no to ungodliness. The word ungodliness means to act as if God were not real. You say, well, that's an, that's an atheist, right? Atheists don't believe in God. They don't believe that God is real. I don't think there's an atheist in here. Am I right? Is anybody in here? <laughs> sure you are. None of us are atheists. But, but did you realize that even as a good church-going Baptist, you can become a practical atheist? You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well... We may say we believe in God, and we may say that we live for God, but we just do it on Sundays. 
Because Monday through Saturday, we're living for ourselves. We're our own boss. We listen to no one but what we say to ourselves. That is being a practical atheist. Because listen to me, church, if we really believe that God exists and that he is who he says he is, it affects every single thing we do every day. And not only everything we do, it affects everything we think and everything we say. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we say no to godless living. Secondly, we say no to worldly living. Now, the phrase that is in verse 12 is worldly passions. We say no to worldly Passions. Let me break that up. Worldly and passions. Passions. Let's talk about passions. Not all passions are bad. In fact, I'm looking around here. I see some very passionate people. How do I know you're passionate? Because I've been to sporting events with you. And you become very passionate. You know, when those, when those boys were out there doing sports, wrestling, when, when my daughters were, were playing volleyball or whatever it was, we became very passionate parents in the bleachers, okay? So we're passionate about sports. Uh, maybe one or two of you are going to be passionate this afternoon. <laughs> you know, at 5.30. Uh, honestly, I, you know, I, I don't want to tell you what I really think. But if my team were in the Super Bowl, we would have probably canceled church tonight. <laughs> you, you hear me? Yeah, Because I'm passionate about that. I, I am passionate about my family. Miss Gail, I love my family. I love my wife. I'm, I'm passionately in love with Miss Angie. I love her with all my heart. I'm passionate about you, baby. You know what? I'm passionate about this church. This is my church for life. I'm passionate about you. I love you. I want to see you grow. And so these passions are not bad. God gave us passion. So passion's not bad. What are we to say no to? We are to say no to worldly passions. Opposite of the things of God, the, the things of this world. I, I can find no better description of these things than in 1 John chapter 2. I memorized this out of the King James. Let me read it out of the NIV just as a different twist on it so that maybe it comes alive in your mind. Here's what it says. Do not love the world. That's what we're talking about, worldly passions. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Do, do you understand that? That is saying you can't love the things of God and love the things of the world at the same time. You've got to choose. Either God's stuff or the world's stuff. And then he goes on and describes this. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has or what he has done comes not from the Father, it comes from the world. So we say no to worldly living. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions when we are the only ones in the living room. In fact, nobody else is in the house 
and we have control of the flipper. And we change the channel, and all of a sudden, sudden, something comes into our living room, into the very room of our own house that is worldly. It's filthy. It's ungodly. And you know, as a Christian, I don't need to be looking at that. I don't need to be watching this show. I don't need to be seeing this movie. And so what do you do? You say no to ungodliness and worldly passions when you say, you know, I'm not going there. And you just keep flipping. Or better yet, you turn it off. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions when we don't allow our minds and our eyes to linger on something that is immoral. Whether it be in a magazine or on a computer screen, we say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. And we don't look. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions when we refuse to stew over an offense that has been done to us. And so we don't get mad, nor do we get even. And nobody in here remembers that bumper sticker then. Remember remember that? Mad or even? We refuse to do that. We don't allow that root of bitterness to begin to grow inside of our heart. And so we deal with situations and we deal with people as Jesus would deal with. And we say no to that. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions when we stop our lips before gossip or hateful comments come spewing out of our mouth. We say no. We say no to ungodly living. We say no to worldly passions so that we can say yes to the things of God. Specifically, verse 12 says, it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is, we are to say yes to three things, restraint, righteousness, and reverence. We say yes to restraint. This is in relationship with ourselves. Verse 12 says, it teaches us to live self-controlled lives. What does that mean? Well, it it means you have control over yourself. You can rein yourself in. You control what you say and what you do, what you don't say, what you don't do. It's more than just, you know, choosing to be, you know, I'm not going to be an immoral person. I'm not going to do these immoral things. It's more than that. It's saying I'm not going to do trivial things or unproductive things. Why? Because I have self-control. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Very few of us have that kind of self-control. In fact, I, I don't mean to start meddling. I guess I've been meddling this whole sermon. But I would say we waste a whole lot of time, don't we, in our day with trivial matters that are unimportant. Why? Because we just don't have that, that kind of restraint and that kind of self-control. What what Paul is telling Titus is, I mean, you know, you've got, you've got to be able to control yourself. There must be, you have to say yes to restraint. Let's try that. Number two, say yes to righteousness. I think this deals more in our relationship with other people. Because the word in verse 12 says, it teaches us to live upright lives. Upright, pertaining to being right. 
as the result of being justified. And God is the one who justifies us or makes us right. So you know what we do? We live upright lives. We live godly lives. That's how we relate to other people. And then we say yes, number three, to reverence. And that deals with our relationship with Almighty God. It teaches us to live godly lives in this present age. The word godly means to worship well. And it pertains to being devoted as a proper expression of our religious beliefs to Almighty God himself. In other words, we take God seriously. And I want you to notice this before I go on. We are to do all of this in this present age. That means we flesh this out seven days a week in the world that we're living in right now. Now let me tell you, our world is a bad place. You don't have to have me tell you that. Just turn on the TV. <laughs> Read the newspaper. In our culture, there are thoughts and opinions and philosophies and values that are floating around that are of the devil. Our world has been polluted by Satan himself. We live in a perverted generation. But in this world, this present world that we live in, God has established lights. In a dark world, he has made lights. And as a believer, you are one of those lights. And he is saying, here's how I want you to live in 2019 in this dark world. I want you to be one of these people who can say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. And at the same time, say yes to me. Let that engine of salvation push you down the track. Why? Why do we need that? Well, it's because our world is a dark place, man. And they need to see the light of Jesus Christ. And the only way they're going to see this great salvation is through your life. So if you're no different than the unsaved people around you, tell me, what good are you doing to God? You need to learn how to say no and how to say yes. So that's the big engine that's pushing us. It's God's great salvation. There's also an engine that is pulling us. What is that? Well, it's the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, that is verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And church, that's what's in front of us. That's what's out there ahead of us. And it's pulling us. It's drawing us toward this lifestyle. Salvation is pushing us to live a holy life. The second coming of Jesus is pulling us to live a holy life. Now, notice what this verse says. It says that Jesus Christ is our great God and our Savior. And that's exactly who he is. I'm going to give him praise for that. He is our great God. He is our Savior, the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem's manger and died on Calvary's cross. He is our great God, and he is our Savior. And after he was buried, he rose again. And after that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But there will be a day when he reappears and when he manifests himself like he has never been seen on earth before. And this verse tells us, as believers, we are waiting for that. We're waiting for that. 
But the word wait doesn't mean like you're waiting in a doctor's office. You ever been waiting in a doctor's office? I've wanted to tell that doctor a few times, my time is just as precious as his time. Anyway, that's a side note. What do we do in a doctor? Well, we look for stuff to read. We, we, we thumb through magazines. We get on our phone. We, we mess with the phone. We doze off. We go to sleep. That's not the kind of waiting that is described in this verse. No, this word means to constantly remain in a state of expectancy concerning a future event. And let me tell you, all of history is moving toward this awesome event. In fact, as believers in Jesus Christ, this verse tells us that this great event is our blessed hope. (laughs) It's our blessed hope. It is our confident expectation that God has greater and better things ahead for us. But why is that our blessed hope? Why is this our blessed hope? Well, I'll tell you why. It is the final installment of God's great redemptive work in our lives. This is where everything is moving for us as believers. Remember, when God saved you, he had a changed life in plan for you. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Who is he? He's the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8, Now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who are eagerly awaiting his appearing. They're longing for his appearing. So that causes me to pause and ask you the question, are you longing for his appearing? I I, I mean... Really, do you ever even think about it? When was the last time you thought, dude, it could be today? I mean, Jesus could come back right now. And when it does come to your mind, does your heart want it? Does your heart expect it? Does it create an eagerness inside of you? In fact, let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed for his appearing? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Did you know the early church had that as their prayer? They said it all the time. Come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Do you long for his appearing? Are you waiting expectantly for it to happen? If not, why? I really pondered that, thought about it this week, and I've come up with maybe three three reasons why we do not eagerly anticipate his coming. Number one, it may be that you've never been taught this. Maybe you're saved, maybe you're a believer, maybe you look forward to heaven, but you've never been taught that you need to be eagerly anticipating the second coming of Jesus. It's something you need to be thinking about every day. Maybe that's just never entered your mind. Maybe you've never heard this biblical teaching, and today you're hearing it, and you're getting it, and you're saying to yourself, you know what? He's right. It could be today. Jesus could come back today. I need to think more about this. 
I need to eagerly await his appearing. And so you're going to do better. You're going to think about it all day today. You're going to think about it tomorrow. You're going to wake up and say, Lord, you coming back today? Through the day when, when you make decisions, you're going to think, you know what? He could come back while I'm doing this thing. Am I making the right decision? Secondly, maybe it's, you're not anticipating the second coming of Jesus Christ because, quite frankly, your, your love for Jesus has grown cold. I mean, you loved him when you got saved. You fell in love with him then. He was precious to you then. You thought about him then. You wanted to see him then. But instead of longing to see Jesus now, you're longing for the things of the world. Talk about passion. Maybe you've lost your, your passion for Jesus. You don't love him like you ought to love him. And today you need to fall back in love with Jesus. I, I keep picking on my wife over here. 35 years ago, I can remember when, when uh, I can, I can re let me tell you, I can remember the first time I saw Miss Angie Archer. Uh, hmm. That's what I thought. Hmm. And then I saw her a few months later as a, as a new student at, at, on Hillsdale's campus, and, and, and I saw her around campus. But I can, re I can remember the next time that I saw her and thought, Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was out on the softball field there at, at, at Hillsdale's campus, now Randall University. She's playing softball. She was, she was playing shortstop. It's just a pickup game, intramural game. And I tell you, she had on white tennis shoes, little bitty tube socks. She had her blue jeans on, and they were rolled up. <laughs> Back then, we were at Bible college, and you couldn't wear shorts, okay? So she had her blue jeans, and she was a little rebellious, so she rolled hers up. <laughs> Maybe saw a little bit of the knee there. She had on this, this, this uh, kind of baseball shirt that was white and red. She had her hair in a, in a ponytail back here. She was out there waiting on her. I remember that. And I thought, Russ, I thought, hmm. And I fell in love with her. And let me tell you. I wanted to be with her all the time. I wanted to talk to her all the time. I wanted to see her all the time. Because we were new in love. I loved her. Wanted to be with her. That was 35 years ago. I still love her. I still want to talk to her. I still want to see her. Every day. Let me tell you, when you love Jesus like you should love Jesus, there's going to be this anticipation. You know what? He might come today, and I can't wait to see him. So maybe this morning you need to come and fall back in love with Jesus. Or perhaps you're not eagerly awaiting the appearing of Jesus Christ because you know you're not ready. I mean, you're here in church on Sunday morning at a, at a Baptist church, and, and so you've got you to gotta believe the basis of the gospel. You've got to know there's only one way to be saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. You know all of that intellectually, but you've never accepted it by faith. You've never been born again. And so you're not eagerly waiting for His coming because you know in your heart's heart you're not ready. If that is the case, let me, just, let me just be real frank with you and tell you, dude, Jesus is coming again. And you need to be ready for that. 
You need to accept his gift of salvation. He paid the price for your redemption. And all you have to do, listen, all you have to do is believe. Look at verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all wickedness. He wants to redeem. He wants to pay the price for your redemption. He did that on Calvary's cross. He shed his life's blood. That's payment for your salvation. He wants to redeem you from what? From wickedness. And to purify you. To clean you up from the inside out. So that you will be his very own prized possession. You will be his MVP. And eager to do what he wants you to do. And that's the goal right there. We got this big old huge engine pushing us to live a holy life. It's called salvation. We've got another big engine that is pulling us. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. To be ready for that great day. To be longing for that great day. And guys, in order to do that, we need to learn how to say no to the things of this world. And yes to the things of God. I'm going to close the service going back to the end of this passage, the end of this text. Because you know what? Jesus could come back today. I mean, he could come back today. Let me tell you one other little story right before we close. Taking you back to Midland, Texas when I was just a little kid. I grew up at the Westside Free Will Baptist Church. And we were at church all the time, man. I mean, we were always at church. And, and so it, it, it reflected in, in the way we lived our life and, and what we did and how we lived. And, and I can remember as a little boy being out in West Texas... In the, uh, what was that, the 63, would we have a 63 Chevy Impala? 63 Chevy Impala. Big, huge, long car. Y'all know what 63 Impalas look like? Big, huge. Big windows everywhere. Big glass. I wish we still had that 63 Impala, don't you, Dad? You could see forever out those windows. And you know what, Russ, you know this, big sky land. You can see forever out in West Texas. No trees, no mountains to block your view couple of tumbleweeds maybe, but that's it. I can remember as a little boy, Jason, I'm talking, I'm talking a little kid, five, six, seven, eight years old, being in the back seat of that Impala. We weren't strapped in. You know where I was? I was lying on the back dash because we could do that back then. So I'd be laying on the back dash of that Impala looking out that big, huge windshield looking up at the clouds. And no lie, I had this thought hundreds of times. I can remember it as if it were yesterday, thinking this thought, boy, he might bust that cloud open. Oh, it could be that cloud. I lived with an anticipation as a little bitty kid that Jesus Christ was coming back, and it could be at any moment. I mean, it's like if look at a little kid, he's coming again. It could be that cloudy bust open. Now, you may think that's weird for a little six-year-old kid to be thinking that. And I've often wondered, looking back, why did I think that? I can tell you why. It's because at the Westside Free Will Baptist Church, we talked about it. It was talked about every Sunday. My pastor, E.E. E. Zellers, he preached for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. 
And let me tell you something, dude. You didn't get up or go anywhere. You didn't look down. You looked right at him. He'd call you out. <laughs> and he would shuck the corn. Every, every Sunday morning at the end of his message, he would end it with, Jesus is coming back. It could be today. Are you ready? Or are you going to be left behind? Come to him for salvation. On Sunday nights, yes, we were back on Sunday nights, he would lift the lid of hellfire and we could fill the flames. If you don't want to go to hell, he would say, you need to come to Jesus in repentance. And Jesus is coming again. It could be tonight. Are you ready? We talked about it. I heard it preached. My Sunday school teacher, my Aunt Pat Cates, talked about it constantly. As a family, we talked about it. Can I tell you something, church? Jesus is coming again. You may not get to see the Super Bowl tonight. <laughs> you may not get out of this building that fast. He's coming. And more than anything, I want you to be ready. Are you? Heavenly Father,